Well, I'm excited to introduce our in-person speaker today, and uh, it's a treat because it's someone that some of you know, some of you know very well. I'm not going to give too much introduction because I, I don't want to uh, let the speaker spoil it, or spoil it for the speaker, but uh, he is a native of Northern Virginia, grew up in, I think, mainly Loudoun County, uh, went to Patrick Henry College. We have any Patrick Henry College people here? Yeah, we go. I knew we had one. I knew we had one. You got one there. Um, but I'm really excited. Uh, Leo, the way I sort of got to know Leo was I listened to uh, one news podcast called The World and Everything in It. If anyone's looking for a good news podcast, uh, my father-in-law told me about it, and I've been listening to it for 11 or 12 years now. And so a couple years ago, I started hearing this guy, Leo Brasino, and I was like, I know that last name. How do I know that last name? Uh, and I'll let him tell you more about that. But excited for Leo to just talk about uh, what world he lives in, which is kind of the political world. But really, a lot of what happens in politics is a lot of what happens in culture. And so Leo's going to be talking about where is God in culture. So give it up for Leo Brasino. Here, we'll move this back so you can speak up here. And a, like any good man would, he's got his coffee with him. <laughs> Thanks, Liam. Sure. All right. Good morning, folks. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, dear Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Um, Father, I pray for the, the young minds here um, at such a pivotal time in their life pray for their development. I pray for the, the many friends, the relationships that they're nurturing here, um, their culture, wherever that is, whether that's in high school, in middle school, public school, private school, home school. Father, I pray for whatever stage of life that they're in and whatever situation uh, that they're in. They would be able to use this time and this week to think about how culture impacts them and how they, in turn, can impact culture. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I, I can't believe that somebody actually cheered when uh, they, they asked about Patrick Henry College. It's a tiny college. There's like 400 people at that school in total. So uh, thank you to the one person that cheered out there. Go PHC. Um, here's a, a little bit about me. Um, I am 26 years old. Um, my uh, favorite category of music right now is uh, lo-fi. Um, I play an ungodly amount of Frisbee, and I mean like an obsessive amount of Frisbee. It's probably not healthy. Uh, and I stand by the conviction that Tom Brady is the greatest of all time, and Patrick Mahomes will never touch him. Thank you. Thank you. And on that note, if you have any complaints about anything that I say up here, you can refer them to my brother. Samuel Brissano, he'll be taking all of the heat from me, so thanks, Sam, and I apologize in advance. So I'm here today to talk about where, the question, where is God in culture? But before we do that, I want to talk just a little bit about where I'm coming from professionally in my background. So I am a congressional reporter for World Magazine. That means that on any given day, I'm waking up 
I'm getting out of bed, usually at around like 6.30 to 7 if it's a good day. I'm getting in my car in Arlington, Virginia, and I'm driving to the United States Capitol, at which point I get to my office, I change out of my sweatpants, I put on a suit, I grab a cup of coffee, and I head into the U.S. House of Representatives. Quick little civics lesson here. Congress, which is kind of like the building basically that makes laws, is divided up into two parts. One of them, the part that I work in, is the U.S. House of Representatives, or the lower chamber of Congress. The U.S. Senate is the upper chamber of Congress, and has a lot fewer representatives. So in, in the Senate, there's only 100 members. In the House of Representatives, the place where I work, there are 435 members, and each state kind of gets a varying, varying number of members depending on the population of the state. And it, it is what the name kind of suggests. It is a very representative body. You've got lawmakers from all different walks of life, all different kinds of cultures and lifestyles and opinions, uh, ethnic groups. It's kind of a just a scramble of the United States of America in lawmaking form. And it really kind of plays out in a number of different ways. There are some lawmakers, believe it or not, that show up in cowboy boots and literally wearing a cowboy hat. You're not allowed to wear a hat in the chamber itself, but a lot of people walk around the offices looking like a cowboy. There are other people that are a little bit more traditional. They just kind of just wear suits. There are other people that wear those like polo things, you know, the, the things that are not ties that are kind of like, I'm not a huge fan of them, but a lot of people use them, especially from kind of like the West, uh, Western culture. So that's the thing. Uh, but like you get, it's, it's, it's this like mix. It's this tension. It's this kind of revolving door of really eccentric personalities and people. And I like to say that it's really a microcosm of culture. So on any given day, if you look at the House of Representatives and ask yourself, what are they talking about? What are they debating? What are they struggling with? It's usually representative or indicative of the larger conversation that's happening in the United States. And if you wanted to read news on kind of what is the theme of the day, I think the House of Representatives is a pretty good place to start. With that out of the way, let me just give a brief kind of spiritual disclaimer here. I'm not a pastor, all right? I'm not a youth leader. I volunteered for church doing AV once like 10 years ago, okay? But I'm not really in kind of the biblical ministry or teaching space. So what I'm sharing with you today is a little bit of my personal observation, both as a professional and just as a Christian, as an individual, okay? I, I do hope to impart a little bit of what God has been laying on my heart. But I would strongly encourage you to take what I'm saying here today, and maybe in your own time, in your own quiet time, evaluate it. See if it measures up with what God has been teaching you recently. Evaluate it against what you know to be true in your relationship, in your walk with God. My goal here today is to encourage you to challenge your own faith and how you perceive the culture around you. So back to the main question. Where is God? More specifically still, where is God in culture? I'm going to give you the, the answer up front, at least my answer to that up front. I think God, yes, I think he is here in our culture. I think he is or he has always been. 
I think he is working through the means that he has always used. And we'll unpack what that means a little bit down the road. But first, let's think about our culture. Has anyone here traveled internationally just by a show of hands? Oh, actually, wow, it's quite a few of you guys, actually. Um, you, sir, in the white hat, right here, first row. Give me a difference. What did you see? What's different between the United States and whatever it is the country that you visited? What country did you visit? Well, let's start with Taiwan. Taiwan's a great example. Yeah, well, what did you see? What was different? What was the biggest difference you saw between Taiwan and the United States? Much cleaner. <laughs> okay, what about how did the people behave? Did you, did you find that? Anything different there? Sure. What do you mean by that? So in Taiwan, I was kind of there. I noticed a lot of people, they acted the same thing. Went to the same place. They had a more orderly routine. Had like a similar taste. Mm -hmm. So in America, it's more like a mixing pot. Of what people so more homogenous. All right. Anyone else? Anyone else been internationally? You, madam, in the glasses? Yeah. A lot of gods. Not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that going to other countries is really eye-opening, or at least it was for me. Um, I've, I've been to a few. I've been to Italy. I've been to um, France and a couple other Hispanic countries, uh, Latin American countries. Uh, just a couple things that I nodded down as kind of like key differences uh, between the United States and kind of other cultures and other places of the world. I think the United States has a massive emphasis on freedom and autonomy. Uh, I think there's kind of a little bit of what you were speaking to, maybe a, a little bit of a, uh, less of an emphasis on homogeny. We are very much a mixing pot. I, I would say there's less of an emphasis on tradition here. Uh, we have a cultural spirit of always wanting to and seeking to push the limits on things. We really do put a lot of emphasis on the spirit of innovation. Those are just some casual observations I was just mulling over in preparation for this uh, that I think are central to kind of the identity, the culture that we have as Americans. And I would argue that many of these things have actually been true since the beginning of our country. I'm going to read this little passage that I have from Alexis de Tocqueville, who is this, basically think of a French aristocrat snob, all right? Right after the United States was founded, a lot of the world was kind of looking at the United States like, what are these punks doing? They just overthrew, arguably at the time, the most powerful nation in the world and kind of went about setting their own form of government, which was representative in nature. I mean, who does that, right? It was really kind of a, a novel experiment, a novel idea. And Alexis de Tocqueville came to the United States basically trying to figure us out. He wanted to see what made us tick. He wanted to know our cultural norms. He wanted to get an idea of why Americans did what, things the way they did. And here's kind of a passage from that. Americans of all ages, this is him speaking, by the way, all conditions, all minds constantly unite. Not only do they have commercial and industrial associations in which they all take part, but they also have a thousand other kinds, religion, religious, moral, grave, futile, very general, very particular, immense, and very small. Americans use association to give fets, that is, parties. 
to found seminaries, to build inns, to raise churches, to distribute books, to send missionaries. In this manner, they create hospitals, prisons, schools. Finally, if it is a question of bringing to light a truth or development or developing a sentiment with which they support a great example, they associate. Wherever that, at the head of a new undertaking, you see the government in France and a great lord in England, count on it that you will perceive an association in the United States. In America, I encountered sorts of associations, which I confess I had no idea, and I often admired, in the infinite art of which the inhabitants of the United States managed to fix a common goal into the efforts of many men and to get them to advance it freely. I have since traveled through England, from which the Americas took some of their laws and many of their usages, and it appeared to me that they are very far from making as constant and as skilled use of association. It often happens that the English execute very great things in isolation, whereas there is scarcely an undertaking so small that Americans do not unite for it. It is evident that the former consider association as a powerful means of action, but the latter, that is Americans, see it in the sole means as they have of acting. So basically, that's a very long and convoluted, I told you he was a snob, a very long and convoluted way of saying, if Americans care about something, they kind of get around it, they form an association around it, and they do that thing. Alexis de Tocqueville found that very remarkable. In other words, the United States is very self-defined. We take a lot of pride in creating an identity for ourselves. Lots of countries kind of identify very closely with their history, right? Or with their geography, or if you're France, right, their food, something like that. The United States is a little different in that we take it upon ourselves to say, hey, this is what's important to us, this is what we're going to do, we're going to become this. So in the context of that, let me ask you, is the United States culturally a Christian nation? I don't know if it's still as supercharged as it was maybe like 10 years ago, but I remember like back in my day in high school, we were talking about this all the time. It was a point of conversation in youth groups, uh, in social studies, in debate camp, in co-ops, in Bible study. I mean, virtually every group where you had some sort of study going on, this question was raised pretty frequently. And I'm not sure if that's still the way today, but I think it's an important question. So let me give you just about maybe 10 seconds. I think that should be enough time to figure it out, right? Uh, and just kind of think about that just for a moment. All right, well, I don't know that I'm able to answer that question in its totality, but I think I can make a pretty compelling argument. At the very, very, very least, the United States has a history and a tradition that it originates in Christian thought. I think that much is undeniable, and elements that played into the formation of this country, both either kind of implicitly or explicitly Christian, continue to have significant influences in our culture today. So just kind of two examples of cultural ways that we kind of continue to benefit or continue to feel the effects of that heritage. So firstly, uh, the pilgrims. They ventured on the Mayflower to escape political persecution 
in Europe, eventually setting, settling in the Cape Cod area. Uh, they're most famous for the establishment of the holiday we know today as Thanksgiving. I bring this one up because I think it is a direct link to a cultural heritage that at its outset was explicitly Christian or faith-based. That is to say, listen, these people were starving, they were down to eating shoes, they were hungry, they got food, they gave thanks to God, right? Not a lot of distance between A and B. It's kind of explicitly Christian. I actually think Thanksgiving and its kind of uh, cultural significance might actually be a little bit more explicitly Christian than even something like Christmas. Because Christmas today, we get the argument that, you know, it's, you know there are a lot of influence that, go, that come into Christmas. There's kind of Germanic traditional influences. There are other types of kind of cultures that play into there, and it's kind of snowballed into something that at least some people, I don't necessarily agree with these arguments, but some people would argue is bigger than just the Christian faith. I think Thanksgiving is a little different in that you look at it and you say, uh, first of all, it's ours, right? It originated in the United States. I think that's pretty special. And then secondly, again, I think it's, it's hard to decouple the idea of the Christian tradition and faith from the idea of Thanksgiving, right? We are giving thanks. Well, to whom? I mean, I, th I think it's God, right? And I think that you'd be hard-pressed as a scholar, an observer, whatever, to say, that's actually not the case for giving thanks to, I don't know, Cthulhu or something, right? It's not an argument that you hear a lot of people making. So that's just one cultural kind of thread that you can trace kind of from the inception of the country to today. You can say, like, no, nah, that's, that's a Christian influence, right? That's, that's a pretty straight correlation there. Um, a second example that I would bring up, and this is kind of pertaining more to me in my political space, is the language and the rhetoric used by the Puritans. So John Winthrop, who famously used the phrase, a shining city on the hill, uh, described the American colony, or his American colony as kind of a way in which he and his group, uh, the, the Puritans, could express to the world what it looked like for Christians to live in community and to be an example to other Christian communities in the world. And it's a powerful phrase that's been used for the entirety of the United States' lifetime to kind of describe the United States. Uh, Ronald Reagan famously used that to say, hey, we are an example to the rest of the world. And he didn't necessarily use it in a Christian, explicitly Christian way, but it has explicitly Christian undertones and an explicitly Christian origin. So why do I say all that? Well, I think it's, it's, again, making the argument that at the very least, the United States has these Christian beginnings, right? I think when you look at things like that, it's really hard to make an argument that it's some other religion, right? I haven't heard anyone try to say, hey, you know what, the United States is actually Jewish in its cultural origin. I don't know if there's a case to be made there. I'm not a historian. From what I know about history, I think that's virtually impossible, right? Uh, today, I mean, if you wanted to go back and argue, hey, you know what, the United States of America is uniquely Muslim in its origin. Again, I, I, I don't think there's really much any evidence to be made there that the United States is Muslim in its origin. It might look more Muslim today in terms of its demographics, but if you look back at the origin of the United States and kind of the thoughts that went into the formation of the people who actually came over here 
and starting setting things up, right? I think you're hard pressed to find some other train of thought that's not Christian. Um, this is kind of a a look at uh, language and rhetoric that uh, goes into our culture. Just a moment. This is kind of pretty technical, but just getting into kind of the more political, philosophical elements for our country's founding. I think I have to talk about how our founders used either explicitly Christian or basically Christian-adjacent thoughts in the founding and the structures of the United States. So right around the time when we declared our independence and started a new country, we were kind of debating what kind of government we should set up, right? There are these papers that came out trying to argue for the kind of government that we have today called the Federalist Papers. Basically, in these, there was an argument of how are we going to create a government where people aren't trying to take over and grab power and basically do all the selfish things that humans are very prone to do uh, virtually in every government everywhere. And the founders basically came up with the idea of, for instance, separated powers, right? And that, that took into account the idea that Listen, human beings, they didn't put it in these terms explicitly, but they said, hey, listen, human beings are generally selfish people. When they get power, they like to hold on to it. They don't really like to share it. So how do we use, how do we empower people without making them too powerful? And they basically came up with, you know, the three branches of government, which is an amazing uh, development in political history. But even kind of that thought had its roots in not, not explicitly faith-based thinking, but reasoning and deductions about our world that heavily implied a creator and a deity and a natural order of things. I'm going to read just a portion from Plato's Republic, which is a book that was written way before the establishment of the United States that was done outside of the Judeo-Christian kind of circles but that nonetheless made an argument for a governance that took into account the idea that there is a creator and an established order of how things should be. So this is from Plato. You must say then that what gives truth to things known and the power to know the knower is the form of the good. And as the cause of knowledge and truth, you must think of it as an object of knowledge, both knowledge and truth, that knowledge and truth are both beautiful things. But if you are to think correctly, you must think of the good as other and more beautiful than they. In the visible realm, light and sight are rightly thought to be sun-like, but wrongly thought to be the sun. So here it is right to think of the knowledge and truth as good-like, but wrong to think that they are either of, that either of them is the good. For the status of the good is yet more honorable. Therefore, you should also say that not only do the objects of knowledge owe their being known to the good, but that their existence and being are also due to it. Although the good is not the being, but something yet beyond the being, superior to it in rank and power. So Plato here argues that there is something outside of Something that supersedes everything that we call good, true, and beautiful. He calls it the good, kind of the overarching good. And from it, he argues that it's in this light that we should view good government. What does it mean to be a good member of the city, the polis? What does it mean to be 
a good um, a fighter. Basically, everything that is good, it de it's derived from something bigger, right? And so the founders would have read Plato, would have taken that into account, and did, were heavily influenced by his writings. I think that's just incredibly fascinating because it sounds an awful lot like the idea of a god, right? A transcendent good that goes beyond our immediate observable nature, something that is responsible for our immediately observable nature around us. So from both, right? I know I just gave you two examples of kind of the cultural one and just the one for kind of a, a structural deduction of why we have the government that we do. But I think from both, from a cultural and structural point of view, you can make a very compelling argument that the founding of our nation was at least somewhat explicitly Christian, and at the very least used faith-based arguments in order to create the form of governance that we have today. They played directly into the formation of the country that we called home. So, I don't know if that's compelling or not to you. In other words, to answer the question, are we a Christian nation? But every time that I've heard that question brought up, those are the kind of arguments that I've heard, right? Every time that it gets brought up, it's like, well, let's think about kind of where we came from, uh, the structures that are put in place, why those were formed, right? It's steeped in our history uh, and the origins of the country. And I think that's a perfectly fine and acceptable kind of line of reasoning, I would say, right? Uh, I mean, if you think about you personally as an individual, maybe you think there's something that's incredibly true of you. For instance, I really love football. I don't know if that was evident from my comment of Tom Brady or not, but I'm obsessed with football. All-time favorite player is Julian Edelman. I, I think that if you, if you say that that's true of you, you have to go and look for signs in your life, right, that say that that would be true of me, right? Maybe I watched the games. Maybe I bought posters. Maybe I have jerseys. I don't, but I would like to. In my room or something like that, right? I think you would have to look at my past actions to say, did this guy do things that kind of line up with that conclusion that he loves football? I think it's kind of the same idea when we look at the United States and say, are we a Christian nation? Are we a Christian culture? Well, let's take a look at where you came from, right? But I think that's a separate, it's a completely different question to ask, what are we doing now? Now, again, I'm not here to definitively answer this question once and for all. I don't think a lot smarter people than myself have really tried and wrestled with that question. But let me just, let me just test this in another way. What does your gut tell you? Um, when I asked, you know, what, are we a Christian culture? And I gave you 10 seconds to think about it. What did your gut say? How did you feel about that question? Now, you may think, Leo, you just dragged us through what was it, like 15 minutes of like historical analysis, and now you're asking me to trust my gut? I'm sorry, but yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm a journalist. Trusting my gut is something that I do on a daily basis, and I'm serious about that. If your gut says something, you should listen to it, because oftentimes if something's not adding up or if something feels kind of weird or 
if something just isn't right and your gut's saying like there's something wrong with this picture, uh, it's usually because there is something kind of interesting going, coming into play. Um, and so when I ask the question of whether or not our, our culture is Christian or not, uh, I think you should listen to your gut. I think that your first reaction, your first instinct should be something you listen to. Let me put it this way, kind of in, in, another, in another light. If aliens came down out of the sky and came to the United States and started evaluating us, would the idea of a Christian identity make the top 10 list? I don't know. I certainly hope so. I certainly hope that's something they would say of us. I mean, if I was an alien, what would I do? I mean, I, I don't know. How do you evaluate a culture? I would maybe look at the I'd maybe look at the buildings, right? Maybe take a look around and be like, oh, what do these people care about? They're obsessed with coffee. That much is very clear, right? I've got a Starbucks on every single street corner. Maybe take a look at the stadiums. Think, hmm, these people are really obsessed with sports. They've got, got a lot of them here. Maybe take a look at state capitals. I think in our case, the aliens would be like, these people have like 50 state capitals. What are you doing? Um... And I think there would be signs, just from a purely observable point of view, that there are traces of our culture that are explicitly Christian in our everyday life. Our coins have, in God we trust, written on them, right? Um, our Pledge of Allegiance has a mention of God in it. At a lot of official proceedings, we pray before we start, right? In my line of work, there is a Senate chaplain that kicks off virtually every meeting, so I think there is a lot of evidence to say, well, yeah, I think we are a Christian culture. But if for a moment your gut says, no, I don't know about that, right? If, if aliens came down and they took a top 10 list, would Christianity make the top 10? If your gut says no, I think you should listen to it. Not necessarily on your way to a definitive answer, right? And I'm not suggesting for you that my opinion is the way or the highway way to view this. I could be entirely wrong. Your observation of the United States could be entirely different from my point of view, right? I'm in the capital, right? I have a very specific way that I'm kind of looking at things and the way I'm experiencing things. So it could be that your answer to that question is entirely different than mine, and I think that's okay. But again, if your gut says, let me think about that for a minute more. I think you should seriously take a look at that. Let me just examine one more document. I know we've been, I dragged you through Plato, just one more document. Let's just evaluate for a moment the Declaration of Independence, right? This is the great granddaddy of virtually all of American thought that came afterward, right? There's a lot of important stuff that happened before the Declaration of Independence, a lot of important stuff that happened after. But I would make the argument the Declaration of Independence significantly impacted the thoughts that Americans had post-declaration. Because in it, we laid out the reasons why we wanted to make a new country, right? It was basically our notice to King George III, we are leaving, and this is why, all right? So basically, the first kind of part of the document goes like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, 
in the pursuit of happiness. These kinds of statements are very important. I think today it's kind of easy to wave them off as something you have to memorize on your way towards a U.S. history test. I, I think that's profound. Because, it, again, it lays out the express purpose the United States has for existing. These are the things they wanted to secure. At the very top, at the very front of the reasons why the United States was made, the founders gave these three, identified these three things as a kind of reason for why they were doing the things that they were doing. Let me just ask a, just a question here. Are these biblical principles? Uh, let's just take a brief look at each one here. Life. Is life a biblical principle? I, yeah, I think so. I think it's pretty safe to say life is a biblical principle. Uh, you know, it's embedded in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, right? Clearly, God values life. We are made in the Imago Dei, that is to say we are made, fashioned in his image. The Bible tells us that's what gives life value. I think we can make a pretty compelling case that when the Declaration of Independence says life is important, the Bible backs it up. Those are consistent thoughts. Let's look at liberty for a second. Uh, is liberty a biblical principle? Well, I don't know about liberty in the same sense the Declaration is talking about, per se, but in the Bible you see lots of references to freedom, right? The Word tells us that Christ came to set us free from death, from sin. Galatians 5.1 reads, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There Paul is talking about sin. 1 Peter 2.16 says, Live as people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but using it as living servants of God. So, while the Declaration of Independence says liberty is going to be a founding principle of this country, uh, and I think that it means slightly different things from what the Bible is referring to when, when it says freedom, I think they're at least not mutually exclusive. They don't clash, right? I think both things can be true. I think that the Bible, again, has more of an emphasis on freedom from sin and freedom from death, freedom from very specific things. But I think that they're consistent. Let's examine that final one, though. A pursuit of happiness? Is that a biblical principle? I think there is a biblical case to be made for joy being an important part of the Christian life, right? As followers of Christ, we're called to be joyful, to do all things without complaining. I know that's not exactly the same thing, but Christ calls us to a life of joy and fulfillment in him. And ultimately, we are promised eternal happiness with him in the next life. But a pursuit of happiness, is that the end of Christianity in of itself? Are you called as Christians to pursue what makes you happy? Again, I think the argument can be made in the long run, yes, because ultimately God gives fulfillment and satisfaction in him. But I think the Bible repeatedly calls us to put aside ourselves, right? To die to ourselves, to suffer in this life. I don't think that as Christians, we can make an argument that the purpose of Christianity is to be happy. I don't think that's it. I think the purpose of Christianity 
is to know Jesus and to make him known. The relationship with Christ is at the center of what the Christian faith is for. So here I find an interesting tension between what the Declaration of Independence identifies as one of the three defining attributes of the United States and the Christian principles of faith. Now, I I think that's really important, and I think that we should really take note of that and really ponder the significance of that disparity, however significant you may think it is or isn't. I think the United States was founded with a lot of Christian principles, but without a lot of Christian restraint. So, um, I think the United States is... (laughs) I think the rest of the world sees us as kind of crazy sometimes in probably the best way possible. We're pretty extravagant. Uh, in, in, uh, in France, I stayed with a, a host family, and just immediately, as soon as I got in, he was like, do you own an assault rifle? I was like, no. He's like, oh. I thought everyone in the United States owned an assault rifle. And I was like, well, if everyone does, I didn't get the memo. That'd be cool, but, you know, I didn't get one. And then he, he, we had a lot of really interesting discussions about American culture and just how we're known for basically having... Everyone has a Lambo, everyone has their own gaming rig, everyone has, again, their own firearms. Um, you know, we'd celebrate our nation's birthday by literally blowing things up. Yeah, what the heck is a kilometer, guys? Huh. <laughs> but isn't that an interesting thought? I mean, we're pretty far out there as, as far as countries go. Our portions are bigger. Our, the things we consume are bigger. We are very flashy. Um, we're kind of known for being a consumerist culture. Uh, this was in France, this was in Italy. There was a time I had family uh, dinner with a family on the Alps, and we were, I don't remember what we were eating, but uh, because there was an American there, they made a big deal out of, they were going to bring out Coke. I was like, all right, sure, why not? I could use a Coke. (laughs) They bring out a singular Coke can, and they put it in front of me, and I'm like, all right, cool. I, you know, I pop it. But before I go to drink or to, to pour it, one of the other people on the other side of the table, this is like five people sitting here, was like, hey, could you pass the Coke? I was like, my Coke? This Coke? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, can I have it? And they're like, all right. So I, I passed the Coke. And they poured themselves like a tiny little bit and they passed it to the next person. I was like, you mean to tell me that one can of Coke is going to go around for five people? I had like, like, you know, like those Western movies where they pour themselves like a drink in the tavern or whatever, and it's like this much. It's like barely any liquid on the bottom. That's kind of what it was. I was like, dude, just give me water, man. I'm still thirsty. Come on. Um, But I I think that just kind of is a tiny little bit of illustration to show that some of one of the biggest differences, I think, between the United States and other cultures is, again, just how big, big we are on consumption and flashiness, and just doing things in a kind of Texas-esque way, where it's just larger than life. And I think that that goes back to the identity of who we are, right? 
the idea of self-identity, the identity of freedom, the, the identity of I can do this myself, I can make it, and I can achieve, and I can achieve more. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, right? I think a lot of, a lot of our culture celebrates kind of these big stakes gambles or these big stake rewards, right? If you want to start a Fortune 500 company, go for it, right? We celebrate those kinds of success, success stories. If you want to drop out of college and start your own music label, risky move. But you know what? We've, we've seen it in the past. Go for it, right? I think this country is chock full of success stories where people take big gambles and end up winning big. Elon Musk is a perfect example. Somebody who came from, I think it was South Africa, came to the United States, started arguably uh, some of the most impactful companies in the past 10 years or so, and now is like the richest man on earth. That's kind of the idea of American success. And one of the things that we highlight is being like, this is ultimate America. This man invented the electric car and sends things into space. All right? America. <laughs> That's an important thing to note. Let me just contextualize this to Capitol Hill where I work, right? There are so many people on Capitol Hill that are all in on their dreams, all in, to the point where their family lives suffer, uh, their personal hygiene suffers. Yes, I've seen that before. The, the people that are on Capitol Hill, the people that make it big in politics, they are not restrained people or even balanced people. People that I look, like, I look at and say, this person is one of the most powerful people in the country but I would never want to live like them. In fact, I, I don't think I can live like them because they've sold out for this dream. But in the United States, that's, I wouldn't say something that's necessarily encouraged. I think hygiene should always be encouraged. Yes. <laughs> Praise God. But I think that that's something that kind of tracks very closely with some of our biggest idols that have succeeded, right? I, I mentioned sports again. Tom Brady, is he normal? No. You, you see like him yelling on the sidelines, right? The guy's a freak. But it also made him the most successful quarterback of all time. And I think if you look at other examples, you look at LeBron, uh, not LeBron, I think he's a kind of a, a moderate one, but you look at MJ, right? He was a freak, right? But it ultimately led and gave him the power to succeed on a level that not many other people can. I bring this up because I think that's directly correlated to the idea of the pursuit of what we want, the pursuit of a self-identity that we can create. I think it's rooted deeply in the idea of American culture. Let me just contrast that with Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Let me read that list one more time. Love, Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. Things that are direct derivatives. Things that you can expect from Christians if they are living out the Christian faith faithfully. Friends, where I come from in Washington, D.C., those are not necessarily assets. Those are liabilities. All right? I think that's part of the reason why our culture uniquely hates Christianity. 
I think the question of whether or not we're, we're a Christian nation, a Christian culture, that's kind of separate for just a moment. Let's talk about today, our culture here and now. Jesus said that if you follow me, your life is going to look pretty hard sometimes, right? He didn't really mince words about it. He didn't really try to sugarcoat it. He said, listen, you follow me, you're signing up for a world that despises you. And the thing is, I think that cultures despise Christians differently, right? I think that some cultures prioritize, you know, uh, their pluralistic beliefs, like uh, the young lady mentioned in India, kind of a multiplicity of religions or gods, right? And Christianity is a threat to that because they say there's one God, right? I think in America, we are uniquely positioned, the culture in America is uniquely positioned to hate God or to resist God because he puts limits on what we can be and on what we can do. Let me just read briefly from Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. But when Herod heard this, and, and here he's referencing Jesus, kind of some things Jesus was doing, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given the orders to John to be arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. And he did this because Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. And when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and their leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask from me anything that you want and I will give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you give to you, up to half my kingdom. Oh, whatever you ask, I will give to you up to half my kingdom, which... Jeez, man, never make life decisions at a party. Just don't do it. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. And at once the girl hurried into the king with a request. She said, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was greatly distressed because, he had, because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. And he did not want to refuse her. So immediately, he sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And the man went, beheaded John in the prison. And he brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. And on hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. So as you can see here from this passage, King Herod has taken a wife. It's not lawful for him to have, right? He's married his brother's wife, which is crazy. And she's mad because John essentially says, hey, you can't do that. That's not right, right? I, I would submit that that's exactly the same kind of spirit why the United States resists or will resist, in short order, the gospel. Because I think America loves its freedom. The moment you try to put any inhibiting factors on that, they will bite you for it. 
They fought an entire war because they were being taxed. I think that spirit is very much still with us today. I think that when we talk about the United States in the context of culture and our Christian heritage, we often forget that this tension even exists because for so much of the time, Christianity and the United States have been on parallel paths because what the founders wanted was freedom so that they could be religious, right? They wanted to to worship without the fear of political persecution. They achieved that. But I think that the American question of pursuit of happiness is an open-ended question to which we have not fully explored the ramifications. The United States says, have the freedom to do whatever you want, right? It's the promise of our country, with some caveats, but that's generally the promise. I think just now the United States is getting to asking itself questions that push past the limits of what the Bible allows for in terms of what it gives freely, right? So, for instance, same-sex marriage. Can, can a boy become a girl? But that's an experiment the United States is trying, right? There, there is no restraint on what we... Uh, talking from the American culture's kind of point of view here. What's stopping us from trying that, right? Well, for the longest time, those, those weren't the questions being asked. So Christians didn't really see the conflict. I think for, for me personally, one of the biggest moments where I started to realize, wait a second... The idea embedded in American thought is someday going to run headlong into the Christian faith was in 2015 with the decision of Obergefell, which is the Supreme Court decision that legalized gay marriage, right? I think if you look at the Constitution and what the Constitution promises their citizen, Obergefell, that decision, lines up with the American freedom experiment. You can do whatever you want, right? Why not gay marriage? That's where the Bible says... Yeah, freedom, but you got to follow what God tells us is right and his divine order that he's instilled in creation. There is a conflict there that is becoming more apparent by the day as the United States continues to push the limits on what is possible, on what can be done, on what should be done. Let me put it this way. In a country where you can choose to be anything you want to be, why would you choose to be limited by your beliefs? I think that's the question that the United States is asking Christianity today. And it's a very important question for us as Christians. What do Christians do in the face of such a question? I think there are really two responses. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but I think there are two responses. I think that you can either isolate, shell, Defend your way of life and create a cove so that it's safe for you to continue living the way that you've always lived. Or you can try to go on the offensive. You can try to take culture head on and change culture so that the things that you deem acceptable will always remain acceptable in the United States. So really, it kind of boils down to offense or defense. So let's talk about defense first. This is the option that Rod Draffer in his 2017 book called the Benedict Option explored. So again, going back to Obergefell and that decision of of gay marriage, I think this author kind of saw that and saw the writing on the wall for Christians and said, culture is headed in a way, it's going in a thought experiment that Christianity cannot follow. What do Christians do? And his answer was, we need to make sure that the world's beliefs do not influence ours. That is to say, the doctrine of the gospel 
remains the doctrine of the gospel. It remains pure. And so his solution to it was basically, let's create an environment where we can be apart from the world, right? Uh, we need to make sure that our beliefs stay pure. So let's add this layer of separation between what kinds of media we engage with, what kind of jobs we have, uh, what kind of positions we take in society. And he, the author clarifies that he, he doesn't believe that the object of the Christian life is necessarily to just influence culture, and I think he's right. But the author comes at it with a recognition that this is not our home, let's just make that explicit. He's also not suggesting we abandon culture either. He's just suggesting we focus on the preservation of the core elements of our faith. Uh, listen, folks, I, I don't think he's entirely wrong. I don't think the defensive option is uh, a bad idea at all. Because there are influences that will try to cord your faith. There, there are influences that are already probing at the gospel and what it says. Did Jesus really come back from the dead, or is that just a metaphor, right? I, I think that as Christians, we have to stand resolute in our belief that Christ did raise, did come back from the dead, and other canons of Scripture like that, right? So I do think that we need to play defense to some extent and say, this is what we believe, and while we're in here, we're going to hold fast to what it is that we've always believed for 2,000 years. And I think that this kind of retreat is a good, great example of that. In a sense, we are here to cultivate beliefs, to nurture beliefs and relationships that support those beliefs, right, for the purpose of then going out and living our lives. So that's, that's the defensive option. Let's talk briefly about offense. I think there's not necessarily any one book or author or figure that I would point to and say, this guy is the champion of the offense strategy here. I, I think there are just people that have acted tremendously with the gifts that God has given them to be representatives for God in such a way that they have actually moved the needle on culture. Uh, I would, I, in this category, I'd put maybe C.S. Lewis, right? His Chronicles of Narnia greatly influenced me as a child in a cultural way. I would say that's an example of a product of something that a Christian wrote that had a massive impact on culture in their day. I would also put J.R.R. Tolkien in that category, right? While not explicit, his books carried a lot of themes that are very closely correlated with themes of hope, forgiveness, perseverance, corruption, not explicitly Christian again, but something that did greatly impact culture with Christian or Christian-adjacent thought. So, and that's actually kind of funny, my, my school was actually um, planted, or created rather, with the express idea of going on offense. For those of you that don't know, Patrick Henry College was founded at the beginning of the century because uh, a, a lot of people... Um, started looking at higher education and saying, hey, there's a problem here. All these Ivy League schools are teaching kids, you know, things that aren't necessarily Christian and, and, you know, framing it in such a way that they really have no way but to kind of either accept these beliefs or just not succeed. And so Patrick Henry College was created as a way to say, hey, we're going to train people specifically with the intent to go into D.C. to play offense, to put people in positions of power so that they can use their religious convictions and their belief in Jesus to influence the space around them. I think offense is also an important part of the picture, right? I don't think that as Christians we should just completely leave culture to itself and just not participate 
in culture at all, I think that we should look to engage with culture outside of these spheres of influence, right? If all you're doing is going to youth group and nothing else, I mean, I think that's, that's maybe great for you, but what about them, right? I mean, I think the Christian life demands that we interact with culture. So that's kind of how I see the answer to the question of the United States seems to be increasingly exploring areas where the Bible can't follow, the Bible seeks to restrain its followers at least a little bit, and for that reason the United States is opposed to you. What are you going to do? You can do one of these two things, right? Or both of these things. Let me just bring up a few examples where I've seen this argument play out, right? Let's talk about defense. When defense comes up, it's generally actually in in an environment like this, um, where maybe it's a conversation a parent has had with their child, or, or maybe, you know, as Christians, conversations that we have with each other. Hey, let, let's not watch this movie, right? This movie doesn't seem very edifying. Let's, I don't think this is going to be good for a spiritual walk. Let's avoid it. Or, or maybe it's, again, the conversation with the, the child. Hey, I don't, I don't think that music is good for you. You know, I, I don't think it's, it's going to lead your mind in a good direction. Uh, listen, I think those are perfectly good and needed conversations to have, and I think they're becoming increasingly more frequent as certain elements in culture become um, just not great to entertain, right? The, the scripture instructs us to keep our minds on good things. A lot of our culture sometimes enjoys glorifying expressly evil things. I'm not entirely sure why. Those are conversations that we need to have, important conversations. Let's talk about offense. In a similar vein, I've heard this come up in conversations with either fellow Christians or politically conservative people that say, hey, we're not able to pray in public like we once were used to. We, we don't you know, broadcast prayer over the intercom system. Or, hey, that coach, he got sued for kneeling on a football field and praying. That's not great, right? Or, then again, in a more notable case, hey, this, uh, this baker, he got sued and taken to the Supreme Court for not making a cake that he didn't want to make, that he felt violated his religious convictions. Uh, man, that's tough. I wish things were different. I wish we could change culture so that uh, that isn't the case. That's a perfectly important conversation to have, too. Those are conversations that need to happen. In fact, there's a whole organization called Alliance Defending Freedom that has basically dedicated itself to asking those things in front of the Supreme Court and elsewhere in the public square. Here's, here's kind of the crux of my concern and what I really want to drive, one of the things that I really want to drive home today. I'm really concerned that as a result of the conversation on culture, and the subsequent response to it, that we're going to frame the conversations that need to happen on both offense and defense as a component of the great culture war that is happening today. And guys, let me be very, very clear about the culture war. <clears throat> it exists. And it's, oh boy, it's, uh, it's heated. I see it literally every day. Um... I see it uh, in the conversations I have with uh, fellow journalists in the hallway where maybe they disagree on something or the way that one of us is covering something, and we get heat for it. We get, you know, 
talk to about it. Uh, I see it in Congress. I see it at, you know, press conference A, Republicans are giving a speech on the southern border. Culture war is there. And then you go to political conference number two, press conference number two, and it's the Democrats, and they get up and they give their spiel on kind of their side of things and the border uh, and how they see it. The culture war is there. I see it in legislation that gets passed. I see it in legislation that doesn't get passed. It is all over the place. Literally every year, millions upon millions of millions of dollars go to fighting the culture war. And I mean like an absurd amount of money. Let me just say that when it comes to the conversation of how Christianity either does or doesn't fit into the culture, I would strongly encourage us not to make that conversation happen in service to, in deference of, the culture war. Okay? However bad things get, I think that we should have a layer of separation between what we want to achieve politically as a society and what we as Christians are called to do. I got two reasons for why I feel very, very strongly about that. First, our God does not lose, and he certainly does not lose culture wars. All right, he's not threatened by a culture that is an open rebellion against him, no matter how explicit or bad that rebellion gets. All right, do you think that God was losing a culture war back before the Edict of Milan, before Christianity became kind of the explicit belief of the Roman Empire, when Christians were getting fed to lions in the Colosseum, when they were getting used as lanterns in Nero's garden, when they were getting like literally sawed in two? Was God losing a culture war? I don't think so. Again, I don't think God is threatened by the popularity contest that we often frame the conversation in. You know, I don't think he's in heaven twiddling his thumbs, really concerned. I don't know. Beyonce is more popular than Chris Tomlin, right? I, I, I don't think that God is threatened by that. I don't think he, he's like, how did we let this happen, right? Maybe if Chris Tomlin could rap, things would be different, but you know, I, I don't think that's his concern, per se. Uh, just think back briefly to the example of Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? There was a whole culture that was bowing down to these pagan gods, this, uh, the demon Baal, right? Baal, however you pronounce it. There was like one dude. It was Elijah on the mountain. Called down some fire from sky and shishkabobbed a couple priests I think it was a clear display that God is not threatened by the prevailing opinion of the time. I think that there is a profound temptation as Christians sometimes to think that we are doing God a favor by protecting him, by playing Christian music in public, or by reading our Bible in places where other people can see us, that we are somehow protecting, defending God against the force that seeks to overthrow him. Listen, that force is never going to throw, overthrow him, okay? No matter what happens here, that's not even a part of the equation. That's not a part of the picture. That's not up for grabs. 
Secondly, and I think that this is kind of the more active point I want to draw here, I don't think Christians need culture. I think culture and the people in it need Christ. Listen, if the success of the church is measured by the cultural visibility and acceptance of Christian thought, then we have a misguided barometer for what it means to be a successful church. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's great that we live in a country that protects so much of what Christians do in their everyday life. It's great that I can take my Bible and I can read it in the Capitol if I want. I can read it in the street and nothing's going to happen to me. I can read it on the beach. Nothing's going to happen to me. It's great that I can hear Chris Tomlin over the radio. That's phenomenal. Some countries really do not have that and will probably never have that. It's fantastic that churches, for instance, are protected institutions. That's not true everywhere. That's an incredible blessing that has prevailed in the Western world. But let me, let me just remind us that these are not the objects of the Christian faith. I believe that very sincerely. If, if for some reason God allows those things to change or to dissipate at a later time, as they well might, I think we can rest assured that that's, that's not necessarily the ultimate failure of the church. The church can do its work, do God's work, in the absence of those things. I think it's always been about culture and the people in culture. As I, was, uh, as I was preparing for this message, I was, I was walking around the Capitol late at night <clears throat> a couple of days ago. I was just kind of mulling it all over. Like, man, I, I'm, so, I'm so thankful I get to work where I work. I get to be on kind of the anvil of democracy where so much of our legislation gets ironed out, where some, again, some of the most powerful people in the world are working every day. I'm so incredibly blessed and thankful to be there and to get to witness a lot of that. But as I was mulling over this idea of culture and just how formative the capital is in our cultural discourse, I kept coming back to the people in the building. I kept thinking about the people that I go to work with almost every day. Just a few of them. Reese Gorman from the Daily Beast, Cammy Mondu from the Washington Examiner, Andrew Solander from Axios, Mia McCarthy from Political, Oriana Gonzalez from Notice, Kayla Gull from the New York Times. I list them and I name them here because I think that's the object of culture and the Christian conflict with culture. I think it's these people that ultimately should be the focus of Christianity. Whether or not they write articles in a certain way that I think kind of directly contradicts the gospel is completely separate from the mission that I have, the responsibility I have as a witness of Christ to try to minister to these people. These people need the gospel. And quite frankly, I'm scared of sharing it with them. There is a cultural war going on, and it affects me too. I go to the, the press gallery, and there are people there that I know are set against me and what I believe. There are people there who have frankly told me they despise the Christian beliefs. Should, should I play defense or offense? 
Should, should I just say, you know what, you guys clearly don't have my beliefs. I'm, I'm just going to sit over here in the corner, and I'm just going to write my article. You write your article, and we're just going to call it a day, right? Or should I play offense? Maybe I set a Bible on the desk and say, aha, this is what I believe, and you're going to listen to it, even if you don't like to hear it. You have to understand this is what I believe. I don't know. I'm being serious. I don't know. I know that conversation is going to come up eventually about my faith and how it affects or doesn't affect these people. And it keeps me up at night. It really does. Sometimes I, I think, what am I going to do when, right, the very obviously um, same-sex attracted person comes to me and, you know, on Valentine's Day and says, hey, will you come do a, I don't know, a double date with me and this other person? I, I dread that moment. I think a lot about situations like that because I know that what I believe is directly opposed to what they believe. But nevertheless, I have to, to say, as a Christian, I got to hold my ground. I have to love you. I have to share the gospel with you. I have to try, right, regardless of this tension that's going on in culture. I haven't figured it out yet. I'm developing some strategies of how I could share the gospel with them but I don't have a good answer for what's going to happen when that subject gets brought up. But I do have the conviction that our faith is stronger than the forces that we see in our culture. Uh, I was uh, interviewing Senator Coons from Delaware the other day. I was in his office. He invited a couple of other Christian reporters to come to just talk about the national prayer breakfast and uh, it was a really frank time. It was a really transparent time. A lot, of, a lot of our elected representatives are really smart people, really, really, really smart people that are very polished and have answers ready to go for virtually anything you want to ask them. Um, and you don't often see their vulnerable side. But he was very frank with us. He kind of took away the curtain for a little bit and said, like, listen, I struggle with loneliness. I feel kind of isolated up here. I feel like I'm working 12-hour days. Like, I, I get tired. And he's a Democrat. Um, but he was just pointing out that the prayer breakfast was really kind of a respite for him from all of this noise and from all of this conflict and from all of this hostility that is often all too evident on our capital. Um, and it was really just eye-opening for me as someone who works in that environment, again, to say, like, wow, our faith, the things that unite you and me, the things that we are singing about here together today, are exactly the same forces that act on some of the most powerful people in Washington, D.C. They need this just as much as we do. They're people, right? It, it was really an amazing moment to say, for me personally, to see that he's looking to faith to be that thing that can bridge even people that he disagrees with the most. It was a really beautiful thing to see in an environment I don't see that too often. I think that the reason that we should engage with culture isn't necessarily to make our lives easier. If we are engaging with culture, and I don't know, the multiplicity of ways that you engage with culture, if we're doing all that in order to make a safe environment for us in the future, so that Christians don't have to suffer persecution, I think we're missing the point. I don't think we should join some sort of culture war 
I think we should look to spread the gospel because I think in a world where Jesus informs your border policy is better than a world where it doesn't, all right? I think in a world where Jesus informs your country's spending decisions, I think that's a better world than in a world that doesn't, right? I think that in a world where your lawmakers depend on wisdom that's not human in nature is better than a world where they don't. There are very real, very dark, very challenging times ahead. I think that you, you spoke yesterday with someone from Israel, right? It's, it's an ugly situation down there, guys. It is a dark, dark situation. People are suffering in a very real way. I deal with a lot of these subjects on a daily basis. You look at the southern border. People are suffering. People are dying. That kind of a topic requires serious consideration, wisdom. And quite frankly, I pray every day for the people around me. I pray that they have the ability to make the right call. I don't know what I would do in that kind of situation. But the reason that I'm praying for them isn't so that I can protect myself from any kind of future persecution. Again, I'm praying because there are very real things that these people have to confront. And I want faith, the Christian faith, to be a part of that picture. So, for you guys, I, I hope that you guys become active participants in culture. Not necessarily, again, so that our way of life continues to be the predominant way of life in the United States. Because I think that time is not over. I, I don't think so. And hopefully it won't be over for a very long time. But I think, again, that that clash is coming. But I, I hope that you guys become active participants in culture for the sake of culture, because you realize that it needs you. It needs the, the hope that surpasses human understanding and a peace not as this world gives it. So coming way, way back to the top, where is God in culture? Well, I'll tell you where he's not. Uh, I don't think that he resides in the music that we play over the radio. I don't think that he resides in the movies that are played in the movie theaters. I don't think he resides in the literature that gets published or in our books or in the curriculum that gets taught in schools. I think he resides where he has always been. I think he resides with his people, with you and with me. Culture can go any which way it wants to go. But at the end of the day, God has always, always, always used individual people to achieve his ends and his purposes. As you engage with culture and confront the many serious questions that are coming your way, and guys, there are some serious questions out there. All right, AI is maybe right now a concern, but it's going to get bigger. Transgender policies, what are we going to do with those? Well, what about data privacy? That's a big one for me. Uh, what, 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 about, what if we put a chip in your brain? Can we do that? We could probably do it. I mean, Neuralink is a thing. Elon's working on it as we speak. There are some crazy challenges and questions ahead. And I have no idea which way culture or how culture is going to react to those. Just remember that he is promised, he's promised to be with you. 
as active participants in that culture, as his messengers, as the church. So as you prepare to go out there and become college students, become professionals, I really just challenge you to do two things. Just read. Read your Bibles, all right? And read the news. That's the only challenge that I'm giving you here today. Read your Bible so that you can defend your faith, so that you know what your faith says. Read the news so you can engage with culture. Uh, read, just, if you have something you care about, pick up one article today. That's my challenge to you. One article. You don't have to really understand all of it. Just pick up one, all right? I think that as Christians, we shouldn't look to abandon culture. We should look to be active participants in here. And let me just read, as, as we have closing, a, a paragraph from Charles Dickens's. Uh, the Christmas Carol. The chimes were ringing three quarters past eleven at that moment. This is Scrooge speaking. Forgive me if I am not justified in what I asked, said Scrooge, looking intently at the spirit's robe, but I see something strange and not belonging to yourself protruding from your skirts. Is that a foot or a claw? It might well be a claw, for the flesh is for the flesh there is upon it, said the spirit, sorrowfully. Look here. And from the foldings of his robe, it brought forth two children. Wretched, abject, frightful, hideous, miserable. They knelt down at his feet and clung upon the outside of his garment. Oh man, look here, look, look down here, exclaimed the ghost. There were a boy and a girl. Yellow, meager, ragged, scowling, wolfish, but prostate too in their humility. Where graceful youth should have filled their features out and touched them with its fresh full tints, a stale and shriveled hand like that of old age had pinched and twisted them and pulled them into shreds. Where angels might have sat and thrown, devils lurked and glared out menacingly. No change, no degradation, no preservation of humility in any grade, through all the mysteries of wonderful creation, had monsters half so horrible and dread. Scrooge startled back, appalled. Having them shown to him in this way, he tried to say they were fine children, but the words choked themselves rather than be parties to a lie of such enormous magnitude. Spirit, are they yours? Scrooge could say no more. They are man, said the spirit, looking down upon them, and they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance, and this girl is want. Beware them both in all the degree, but most of all, beware this boy, for on his brow I see a word which is doom, unless the writing be erased. Deny it, cried the spirit, stretching his hand out towards the city. Slander those who tell it ye. Admit it for your vexed purposes and make it worse. Abide the end. Uh, listen, I, I think that Dickens is making a very appealing argument here. You leave culture to its own devices and it's going to wither. I think he's telling Scrooge here because Scrooge has money, right? But as Christians, I think the same message applies to us. Uh, I think that we should see the gospel as the answer that this world so desperately craves, the hope that it so desperately needs. I, I don't think we should see culture as a shield to protect us. I think we should see it as the object of our mission because it needs the faith. In summary... Our culture has been historically rooted in Christian thought, both, as we saw briefly, on a structural and cultural level. 
Those forces may not be strong enough to prevent tensions between the prevailing norms of our country and that of the Christian faith to clash. There is a clash. It's happening. It's going to happen. But amid that, Christians should seek to, not to win a culture war, but should seek to, be, to remain set on the object of the faith, reaching lost souls for their own sake and for culture's sake. God is here in our culture. He is where he has always been, acting through his people to achieve his ends. And he has promised us that he is with us until the end of the age, whatever that may look like. All right, let's pray. Um, Father, thanks for um, the many gifts that you give us here in the United States, just the freedoms that we enjoy um, that we often really take for granted. Um, I pray for these young students here who really have so much development ahead of them, have so many questions to deal with, especially in this age and this time. Uh, I pray that you would be with them as they learn their place in culture and as culture invariably puts pressures on them to maybe change their ways, to go out of their way to pursue things that they want above you. I pray that you would not allow them to fall away, that you would keep them with you, that you would keep them to yourself. And Father, I pray for the rest of their time here at this retreat, that you would impress upon them the lessons that they need to learn and take home with them, and that you would guide them in their personal devotions, that they would be able to meditate upon your word and come closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.